I'll tell you, I'm kind of getting, I'm getting distracted by these neon green vests that everybody's wearing. I keep thinking y'all should have the, the orange lights in your hands, you know, like directing traffic or airs, planes or something. What? Tomorrow. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Cattle prods are tomorrow. Um, that's, that's terrible. True, but terrible. Um, this morning, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, want to open up uh, to that letter of Paul uh, to the church in Corinth, uh, to this young church that is um, facing some challenges of, of their own making, if you will. And this is a different kind of letter than some of the ones that we've talked about recently. Uh, it's not dripping with some of the affection that you may find in um, Philippians or, or some of the other letters that Paul wrote. There's some real struggles this church is starting to face. And, uh, and Paul wants to, to help them deal with that in a, in a Christ-honoring way. So we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning, how those struggles speak to some of our struggles and challenges in faith. So let's pick this up again, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning at verse 6. This is what Paul writes here, brothers and sisters, these words of the Lord. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to, me, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak... Then I am strong. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Lord, give us ears to hear. Your word, your challenge, your direction as the Holy Spirit speaks into our lives. That we would be less so that in us Christ may be more. We pray in his holy name. Amen. So I, during the prayer time, I, I mentioned to you, I talked a little bit about uh, annual conference uh, this past week. Uh, annual conference this past week was actually at Bethune-Cookman University. So it was over in Daytona Beach. Uh, and it was, it was nice because they got hotels um, for us to stay at. They worked out deals for us to stay at. So we, a few of us got chances to stay at um, hotels on the beach. So we suffered for Jesus this week. And um, it, was, it was good. There, there, was, a, there was a lot of business. I, I told you, um, Ryan and Cassie and Abby were, were youth delegates. And uh, Ryan came home yesterday. And uh, he, it was a busy week. He laid down at 6. Last night, he laid down at 6 o'clock. And he woke up this morning at 7.30. Wow. 
so he should look more rested than he's ever looked before. Um, but so it was, it, was a, it was a very busy week. It was a good week. Next year, they're traditionally it's been in Lakeland. That's usually where we have our annual conference. Uh, Florida Southern College is there in the Lakeland Civic Center. This year they moved it to Bethune-Cookman. Next year they're moving us to, we're staying at a, one of the big um, convention center slash hotels uh, on the Disney property. So um, we'll be suffering for Jesus at Disney. And, uh, but it's, it's led to a, a little bit of a theological dilemma that I'm having, and that is, are Disney passes a legitimate ministry expense? <laughs> uh, maybe. I don't, um, and just in case your imagination runs wild, no, they're not, just so you know. But, uh, but we'll be there next year, and so, so that should be fun. Uh, but at annual conference, traditionally... Historically, I guess I should say, uh, there are, there's, like I said, there's business that's done, there's worship services, uh, they'll have speakers come in, and normally there are different speakers throughout the week. You'll have a, a, a different preacher at a worship service, somebody may speak the next day on a certain ministry topic. So over the course of an annual conference, you'll have four or five different um, pastors or, or leaders that will speak on various subjects. Uh, this year was a little bit different in that they had one primary speaker who spoke multiple times. And that was uh, Adam Hamilton. Now, Adam Hamilton may not be a name that's familiar to many of you, maybe a few. Uh, Adam Hamilton is the pastor at Church of the Resurrection in Kansas City. Church of the Resurrection began in 1990. They started in a funeral home, which is why they're called Church of the Resurrection, because they took that name, they started in a funeral home. And today, they are the largest United Methodist Church in the United States. Um, thousands, I think on a weekend, you know, 12, 13, 14,000, I don't know. They have multiple sites. Uh, and Adam Hamilton has become one of the, the gurus in, in Methodism. He's a fantastic speaker. He spoke three times for about two hours each session. And um, I didn't get bored for a moment. I didn't, I mean, it was amazing, his ability to hold the attention. I wanted to try an experiment to see how long I could preach before you guys would get bored and just leave. I promise you it wouldn't take you two hours. <laughs> it would be much less. But he, he went and, and spoke on a, on a variety of, of leadership and ministry topics, and I'm not going to even attempt to boil that down in a few moments because it would be impossible. But it was the third morning, which was just um, Friday morning, or Friday afternoon, actually, when he, when he spoke, and he was talking about mission and outreach. And he said something in, in the course of his teaching that was what I consider a throwaway line. A throwaway line is something that, and I, and I have these all the time, it, it doesn't mean that it's not of any value, but it's something that gets said that really doesn't underline any point. It's just kind of an off-the-cuff, top-of-the-head top kind of remark. I, I do this all the time. They're, they're the lines that most are likely to get me in trouble um, because something just kind of pops in your head and it, it's said. And, and he made a statement, and he was talking about um, his friendship with Michael Slaughter. Now, again, I'm, I'm dropping names that are probably not familiar to you, but just to give you some background, Mike Slaughter is the pastor at Ginghamsburg United Methodist Church in Ginghamsburg, Ohio, Ohio, which is also one of the largest United Methodist churches uh, in the country. And so Mike and, and um, uh, Adam were friends, and they were talking one day, and Mike was sharing about this mission outreach, this fundraising that they had done to support some of their mission work and how successful it had been. And Adam said, I heard him say that, 
And Adam's line was, and I'm competitive, and I don't want Mike to outdo me. So I took the idea back to my church, and they started it and have raised millions of dollars for mission and outreach. Now, the point is not the idea. The point is Mike's or Adam's comment, I'm competitive, and I didn't want Mike to outdo me. And that really stuck out to me because I'm competitive. I'm, I'm competitive. I'm hyper-competitive. I have learned through the years to mask it a little bit better, but I don't like to lose. And I, yeah, thank you very much. Um, and my behavior at points in my life have been less than exemplary in moments of frustration around not performing to what I consider to be the best of my ability or not performing good enough to beat my opponent in whatever it was. My brother and I used to play tennis all the time, and I tell you, rackets would fly off the court because we'd get hyper, hyper competitive. It's, it's part of my very nature as well. And I know it is others as well. I, I know it's not just me. There's something about us. We're driven in, in some ways. And, and what stuck out to me was Adam's admission of that. Now, I don't think there was anything wrong with him saying that. I don't think it was a negative thing. But, but in my mind, I'm thinking, wow. Now, here's a pastor that has achieved what many of us would describe as kind of the top, the, the pinnacle of success. Now, let me preface by saying success in ministry is a very dangerous word. In fact, I don't think it's our word. We're not called to be successful. We're called to be faithful. That's our word. And, and so it's very, very dangerous when we begin to, to, to try to quantify success as we understand Christ's call upon our lives. And, and that's a relative term because I believe you can be successful pastoring a church of, of 100,000 people and you can be successful in a church of 30 people that are called and faithfully doing what God's called them to do. So let me preface all of that by saying I recognize that, but let's, let's be worldly for a moment, and let's recognize the world kind of has very measurable standards of success, and one of the ways that the world measures success is um, size. And here's Adam leading the largest United Methodist Church in the country, and you think, what, what's to be competitive about? But it's the nature of who he is. He wants to be better. Competitiveness can be a very, very good thing. In fact, I think it is, it is a good thing. I want my kids to have a level of competitiveness, appropriately. But competitiveness can also become very, very dangerous. It can become spiritually destructive when it is taken to an extreme, when it loses its, its place, and when it leads us to unhealthy comparisons and unhealthy practices. So let's talk about that for a moment. Because, because I think competitiveness can be both unhealthy and unfaithful. Let's talk about unhealthy. We're not going to spend a lot of time on unhealthy. But here's the danger with competitiveness. Because competitiveness is measured by how you are doing compared to someone else. Now, usually it's a one-on-one -on -one or a team-on-team. -team, but you measure yourself against someone else. The goal is to beat them. And so how that manifests in our lives or in our businesses or in our families, in our relationships, is we're constantly trying to keep up with the Joneses. We want to have more, be better than, achieve more, uh, have more uh, uh, recognition, whatever it is. We look at those in our circles and we think, how can I be a little bit better than they are? And the danger, the unhealthiness of that is, 
it will never be enough. There will always be somebody who has achieved more, earned more, been recognized more, climbed higher on the ladder, whatever it is, there's always going to be somebody a step higher. And so what happens is it can become very defeating. It can become very crippling because we constantly compare ourselves to others and we can fall into the trap of feeling less than because we don't have what they have. We haven't done what they've done. We haven't achieved what they have achieved. This creeps into ministry all the time. You know, I, I meet somebody who's comparable in age to me and, and their church is bigger and they're doing more and they're more recognized and I think, wow, man, I must have fallen short because I'm not where they are. And I have to be reminded what we have to be reminded. I'm not called to be where they, they are. I'm called to be where I am. So it creates this, this comparison that becomes very, very unhealthy or it leads us to a heightened sense of worth. Because what happens is when we start to compare, we have two choices. Either we become fixated for, on those who are above us on the ladder, however we define it, or we focus on those who are below us on the ladder, however we define it. And that creates arrogance. And that's where it becomes uh, unfaithful. Because then we start to, lo to, to look at that, that those who are, are below whatever status we achieve, and we think, well, gosh, look where I am. And, and we get a little bit of a big head. And life is full of moments when our bubbles get burst. And that's no fun. And most of us have had that experience. I was 13 years old. I was on a youth trip to Disney, of all places. We were there. We had, Dad had just moved to the church in Hudson, so I was part of this new youth group. And we were staying at a hotel and, and a bunch of the youth, and I had gone down to the pool. And we are down in the pool. Now, when I was a, a teenager, I was a good swimmer. I wasn't a competitive swimmer. I didn't race or anything, but I could beat most of my friends in, in the pool. So I liked to race because I liked to win. And, and so we would race, and I would win. And then I would get cocky because I was a punk because that's what 13-year-old boys are. And... Um, I'm sorry if you're 13, but if you have, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I just offended 13-year-old boys. But I was one a long time ago. And so I'm down there, and, and my friends and I, you know, we're racing, and I'm winning, and I'm racing my brothers, and I'm winning, and I'm getting mouthy about it. And there was a, there was a young girl there, wasn't part of the youth group, but the family was there on vacation, and she was just watching all of this. She was probably about 11. And she finally, when all the kind of, it stopped, she, she looked at me, and she said, I'll race you. And I thought, really? You know, 11-year-old girl? So I'll humor her and I'll race her. And she whipped my butt. <laughs> that, why do y'all clap for that? I, I thought, she did. She, I mean, I'm not even talking about beat me a little. I mean, she thrashed me. And um, pop goes the bubble. And I was talking to her afterward, and, and I said, gosh, you're really, really good. And she's like, well... She's like, I've got to be honest, I'm the under-12 state record holder in Mississippi. <laughs> and I said, I just got set up is what I got set up for. Um, the point is, we have those moments. When we become a little too focused on status and position and where we rank with others, and God has a way of working in those moments sometimes to kind of burst the bubble. The church in Corinth 
was in a moment when they needed their bubble burst. That's the situation that Paul's having to deal with in this text in, in 2 Corinthians 12. And it's not necessarily obvious when you just read these few verses, but this is kind of what's going on. These are first-generation Christians. They've come to faith in Jesus. Miraculous things have happened. And they've started to play the game of spiritual one-upmanship. They've started to play a game where they're basically saying, God has done this remarkable thing in me, and God has revealed in this powerful way, and my, my faith story and my conversion story is so remarkable. And, and there's nothing wrong with celebrating what God has done. But here's what they start to do. They start to make their experience the, the normative standard of being a follower of Jesus. What they're basically wanting to say is, if you haven't had an experience like I have had, if you've not experienced Jesus the way I have, if he hasn't changed your life the way he has, if you don't have my kind of a testimony, you're not as worthy, you're not as um, spiritual and Christian as I am. So they're creating this standard that is not built on faith, it's built on uh, an experience. And what's happened is then they begin to turn that microscope on Paul. And they begin to say, well, wait a minute. You know, we've had these remarkable things and, and our testimony. Why do we need to listen to Paul? I mean, who's Paul that, that we should, should give him uh, our ear and that we should trust him to lead us and teach us and instruct us? So they begin to kind of call out Paul and say, what's your credentials? What's your resume that makes you worthy to lead us? which I find comical based on the story Paul had that we read in Acts chapter 9 of his conversion and how powerful and dramatically Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus and turned his life around. And it doesn't get more dramatic than that, but they're questioning and they're calling out Paul. And they're basically getting the big head. And they're saying, all right, Paul, why don't you validate yourself to us? Why don't you justify to us why we need to listen to you? And that's what leads Paul into those words in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Hear the first verse 6 again. Even if I should choose to boast. He was saying, even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. Now, let me pause for a moment. I think... This is my reading into the life of Paul. I think Paul probably struggled with spiritual arrogance. I think that was a challenge in his life because Paul, if you went back and, and were to read Philippians chapter 3, Paul does kind of list his credentials. He talks in Philippians chapter 3, he talks about having been circumcised on the eighth day and having been uh, schooled in the law and the prophets and being a Pharisee and, and being eloquent in his speech. He kind of gives his resume. And I think Paul knew his gifts and his talents. And I think he probably wrestled from time to time with having to kind of dial back um, his own um, sense of, of value and worth. I, I do think, and that's my reading, that that was a little bit of a, of a struggle for Paul. But see, here's the interesting thing. If you go back and really read chapter 3 of Philippians, after he lists all those credentials, he says in verse 8, And I count them as rubbish. Counted as garbage, and no value, whatever appropriate colorful word you want to use. He says it has no value compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus. And that's what he does here. What Paul does is, is he says, you're trying to suck me into your game. 
You're trying to suck me into that, that game of, of, of spiritual one-upmanship. You know, you're going to... There, there's a story of a woman who was at a dinner party one night. And, and she was kind of getting prideful. And, and she had talked about her family lineage. And they had traced her family tree. And she said, my family traces back all the way to Alexander the Great. And she looked at the woman and she said, well, how about you? How far back does your family go? And the woman just looked at her and shook her head. And she's like, well, to tell you the truth... We're just not really sure how far back my family goes. All our records were lost in the flood. <laughs> I'm letting you catch up to it. Becomes a game. You tell, you've known people in your life that, uh, that can out-God you. you know, no matter what you've done. They've done a little more. Now, how much you pray, they pray a little more. How much you read the Bible, they read the Bible a little more. How much you go to church, they go to church a little bit more. Okay, that's what, Corinth, that's what, that's what the, the Corinthian church is trying to pull God, Paul into. Out-God us. Well, so I'm not playing that. I'm not going to play that. It might be true, but I'm not going to do it. And he goes on to turn the argument upside down. He says, I will not brag on my accomplishments. I will not brag on my talents. I will not brag on my resume. What's he say I'm going to brag about? I will boast about my weakness. I will boast about my suffering, my persecution, my hardships, because the key is, as he says, I have learned that when I am strength, when I am weak, then I'm strong. He had learned that truth of what Jesus speaks to him in his prayer. Paul talks about that thorn in his flesh right here. We don't know what the thorn was. Biblical scholars will, will debate all day long exactly what Paul's thorn in the flesh was. We have no idea. My feeling about it is if Paul wanted us to know, he'd have told us. We just know something plagued him. And here's a man of miracles who healed and, and, and was the instrument God used to deliver others. And he says he pleaded with God, and three times God said no. Here's, here's a model of prayer. Sometimes God says no. And he hears the words, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That's what Paul has recognized. See, we have a tendency that we get faith backwards. And we want to believe that, that we are instruments of God's use and we're valuable to God because of the talents and the gifts and the things that we bring. Now, your talents and your gifts matter, and they're a gift of God. But your value to God is your availability. Your value to God is your willingness to come empty to be filled to allow the Holy Spirit to work in you. What he wants desperately for the church to understand is stop. Stop, because it's not about you. Because what happens is when it becomes about our gifts and our ability and our talents and what we bring to the table, it becomes about us. It becomes a self-centered faith. It's not about God. It's about us. We'll use God language. And if you've grown up in the church or you've been in the church, you can make it sound flowery all day long. But the reality is this. When people are trying to out-God you, they're really not talking about God. They're talking about them. And it takes our eyes off of God. And our, and our faith and our walk with Jesus becomes very self-centered. And Jesus warns over and over about that. You know, Jesus says more about spiritual arrogance than he does anything else. He talks about that more than he talks about the sexual sins or the material sins. He warns over and over the religious community, the believers, about spiritual arrogance. And the Gospels and the Epistles will affirm the truth over and over that God in Christ exalts the humble and humbles the exalted. And so it, because it takes our eyes off of God. But here's the other detriment. This is what I think Paul is so afraid of for the Corinthian church. Is it just stinks. 
it's an unpleasant odor. I mean, if you walked into a room that stinks, what's the first thing you want to do? Get out. Unless it's your house and you want to smell better. But most of them, you want to get away from it. We're called to be the aroma of Christ. Now, what, what did Christ do? He attracted people wanted to come to Jesus. They flocked to Jesus. The prostitutes, the downtrodden, the sick, the rejected, the outcasts. But when we begin to focus on our spiritual worthiness, to create these artificial measurements of, of holiness and, and worthiness and, 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 and blessedness, we just we stink. The world doesn't want any part of that. They see that like, hmm, no thanks. We forget our mission. We're a church, and we exist for those who aren't here. Certainly we grow in the faith, but what does Jesus grow us to do? To reach others. We don't reach, we repel. Because we have lost sight of the truth of the grace of Jesus, that it is freely given independent of our worthiness, that our gifts are given in response. Our worthiness comes in the receiving of the gift and responding in faith. And the church in Corinth is running that risk of just turning people away by their pride and their arrogance. Paul wants them to rethink what their understanding of faith is. We need to be challenged in that because we run the risk. I run the risk. I can become incredibly judgmental toward others. Tony and I sat around on the, the one day. I went a day early with the kids to Daytona so that we could enjoy the beach. And we were sitting out one day, and, and I was watching these young girls in the pool, and uh, their language was atrocious. Their behavior, I thought, was embarrassing. And I started thinking, wonder who's raising them? And then the mother came by, and I judged her like that too. And, and I said to Tony, I'm sitting there, and I'm realizing my own thoughts. And I said, man, I can be incredibly judgmental, incredibly judgmental, because I saw behavior that seemed less than worthy. Now, I'm not advocating the behavior. I think it was bad behavior. But I dismissed them because of it. And that's where I'd missed it. And I'm, so, so hear me say, I'm, Paul, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking with you. I fall into that trap. And Paul warns us about that trap, that we see the value and worth because we all come empty to be filled by Christ. That's what our faith is about. A little girl was learning the 23rd Psalm. And it was part of a, a Sunday school class, and she got to get up one morning to recite the 23rd Psalm before the congregation. And this is how she started. The Lord is my shepherd. That's all I want. <laughs> Here's the truth. In getting it wrong, she got it so right. She got it so right. The Lord is my shepherd. That's all I want. And that's all we need. Now, we are gifted, and we're valuable, and God has poured in spirit into us, but we don't earn what he's given. We receive it empty. We come as we are because that's how God receives us, but let's not create stumbling blocks for others. As he receives us, he receives others. Let's not fall into that trap of a spiritual arrogance or pride that repels, but let's be the aroma of Jesus. The Lord is my shepherd. That's all I want. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we just we forget sometimes. We forget that, that we came to you in our brokenness and in our unworthiness, and you received us, and you fill us with the Holy Spirit. 
and you restore and you heal. Lord, forgive us when we create stumbling blocks for others, intentionally or unintentionally, by becoming prideful in our worthiness, our perceived worthiness. Help us to receive others as you have received us, to love others as you have loved us, and to be the aroma of Christ that invites and receives. We pray in his holy name. Amen.